0: Amen. May God make His glory known through the preaching of His Word. You can have a seat. So good to see you this morning. So good to worship the Lord Jesus Christ with you today. This is what we were made to do uh, together to worship the Lord Jesus Christ. Before I pray for us and we jump into the sermon, I wanted to take this opportunity to recognize this very special occasion. Mary Ann Maddox is with us today. Uh, so good, so good to have her uh, with us. For those of you who don't know Mary Ann, she's been a member of this church for 65 plus years. Uh, recently, she's moved down to live with her family in San Marcos, and so to have her uh, here is, is such a blessing. Uh, she turned 90 years old this past week. That's awesome. It was a, a grand party yesterday in the fellowship hall. So many uh, familiar faces that we got to see. Uh, so many people that love Mary Ann and, and her late husband, Mr. Glenn. And uh, just such, such good, so good to see uh, so much love uh, toward her. Uh, one quick story about yesterday uh, I was standing in line to to uh, hug Mary Ann's neck. And, tell her happy birthday. And I happened to be standing uh, by this, this couple that I didn't recognize. I knew just about everybody in the place, but I didn't recognize this couple that I was standing uh, next to. And so I took the opportunity to say, how do you know Mary Ann? And they said, great question. And they said, we were Mary Ann and Glenn's neighbors. And so here's this couple standing here, just beaming with joy. They wanted me to take their picture with Mary Ann. And I just thought, Mary Ann, I want to, I want to be like you and Mr. Glenn. I wanna be the person that neighbors come to my 90th birthday party. That just Marianne and Glenn have had this impact on people that reaches much further than this church and much further than just her family and to all these people that she touched. But the, the other thought that I had with this couple standing there was: man, what kind of lottery did you guys win? To get to have, to get to live by Marianne and Glenn? I mean, what an incredible blessing from God. Um, to have that happen. We thank God for you, Mary Ann, for the impact you've had on this church that I think is going to uh, only eternity is going to tell. Uh, just the massive impact and fruitfulness that you've had on this church. If you don't know uh, Mary Ann, introduce yourself uh, to her uh, before you leave today. Uh, she is such a blessing to this church. Let's pray together. Lord, Your words are the words of life. And I pray that You would speak to us now. Your words of life. Thank you so much for what you're doing in this church, for how you've blessed this church for so many years and decades. Help us to be the kind of people that make an impact on those around us. Help us to be the kind of people who live fruitful and faithful lives to you, the Lord Jesus. Lord, I pray that you would help us to enjoy these lives you've given us. Help us to enjoy the here and the now. Help us to enjoy in the midst of the struggles and weariness of this life. Help us to see Your glory at work all around us. Lord, speak to us now. We need You. We ask for Your help in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Well, go ahead and turn in your copy of God's Word to the book of Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes chapter 4. If you don't have a Bible with you, you might be able to find a black hardback Bible in the pew rack in front of you. Uh, if you have that hardback Bible. Ecclesiastes 4 is on page 555. Five, five, five. And by the way, if you don't have a copy of God's Word of your own, feel free to take that hardback Bible home with you. That would be our gift to you. We'll hope that you will read it. Ecclesiastes chapter 4. We're going to look this morning at verse 1 through chapter 5 verse 7. In our study of the book of Ecclesiastes, we're in this middle section where the author of Ecclesiastes is going to start applying in really practical ways what he's already said about the, the frutility of life, the, the, the shortness, the, the limitless the, the limitness of life, that it doesn't last and it is here today, gone tomorrow. Now before we read this passage together, I want to help us apply what we're going to hear before we even read it. So my aim in every sermon is to help us apply God's Word to our life. But no application is going to be immediately as applicable as this right now in what we see in chapter 5, verse 1. We're going to end this sermon by seeing that God's Word calls us to guard our steps when we approach God. And the way the author tells us to guard our steps when we come to God is to come to God with a certain posture. Posture. We are to come to God with the posture of listening rather than speaking. Being hasty and wordy and being quick to do instead of being in the presence of God reveals pride in our hearts. And so we are to primarily come to God to listen to Him. And to learn from Him. That's what the author of Ecclesiastes he says is how we guard our steps. As we guard our steps coming to God by coming with the posture of listening. And so let's apply that right now as we study and read God's Word together. Our posture is to be one of receiving from God, not giving to God. Our heart is to be bent toward listening, not speaking or questioning. Are arguing with God and so let's guard our steps in the presence of God by listening to his word being read and proclaimed to us Ecclesiastes 4 beginning in verse 1 this is, this is the word of God again I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun and behold the tears of the oppressed and they had no one to comfort them on the side of their oppressors, there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. And I thought the dead who were already dead more fortunate than the living who were still alive. But better than both is he who has not yet been, and has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. Then I saw that all toil and all skill in work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity." and a striving after wind the fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh better is a handful of quietness than two handfuls of toil and a striving after wind again i saw vanity under the sun One person who has no other, either son or brother, yet there is no end to all his toil, and his eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he never asks, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity and an unhappy business. Two are better than one, because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him, who is alone when he falls, and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm, but how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. Better was a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. For he went from prison to the throne, though in his own kingdom he had been poor. I saw all the living who move about under the sun, along with that youth who was to stand in the king's place. There was no end of all the people, all of whom he led. Yet those who come later will not rejoice in him. Surely this also is vanity and a striving after wind. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. When you vow a vow to God, do not delay paying it, for He has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Let not your mouth lead you into sin. And do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? For when dreams increase and words grow many, There is vanity, but God is the one you must fear. This is the word of the righteous God. May God stamp its truth on our hearts. Well, this passage contains some observations about the world that deeply bothered the preacher of Ecclesiastes. He looked up. And saw all these various problems and sins and lies in the world that troubled his soul. Notice the repeated phrase, I saw. Chapter 4, verse 1. Chapter 4, verse 4. Chapter 4, verse 7. And chapter 4, verse 15. I saw. I saw. I saw. I saw. The preacher is drawing our attention to specific evil that he is observing under the sun. I count five specific evils he mentions in this passage that are pitfalls we all need to be aware of in our own lives. Five lies that we as humans believe about the world and how we live. Five lies that our Savior, Jesus Christ, came to rescue us from. And so as we continue to draw near to God to listen to His Word, and as we prepare our hearts to partake of the Lord's Supper today, let's evaluate our tendency to believe these various lies prevalent all around us in this fallen world. In fact, we just sang the words, the prayer, Lord, guard us from the lies the enemy will speak. May that be our prayer. Lord, guard us from these lies that we're tempted to believe. Here's lie number one the first lie it doesn't matter how I treat others. It doesn't matter how I treat others. The preacher starts by identifying the oppression and injustice in this life under the sun. He walked through life and he noticed all of these oppressions that happen under the sun. People believing the lie that it doesn't matter how they treat one another. Now, most of the time, Our eyes are hidden and shielded from the vast majority of the oppressions that are going on in the world today. We can't see the child being abused behind closed doors. We can't see the sexual assault in the dorm room that is about to happen. We don't know the racism and injustice that is being schemed and planned away from the media's gauge. I think often what would happen if we were given the ability to see all the oppressions that are being done all around the world right now? What if we were just supernaturally given the ability to see all the ways that injustice and oppression is happening in our world? I think we would literally die from heartache if we could see it all. If we could see all of the atrocities going on, we would just, your heart would just stop beating. We would all conclude with the preacher that it would be better to have never been born than to have to face all the wickedness and oppression going on in this life under the sun. Think about it. The preacher is writing thousands of years ago, and yet we still see oppression and injustice running rampant in the world today. Like We think we're so advanced. We think we have made so much progress We're so proud of what we see as advancements in human life. But friends, our world and our hearts are plagued by the same sins. Ever since the Garden of Eden, the human heart is plagued by the same sins. Those sins usually revolve around how we treat each other. The way that we relate to one another. Notice what the preacher saw in verse 1. He says he saw not just oppressions going on, people oppressing people, but notice he saw the tears of those who were being oppressed. And he says one of the reasons for their tears is because they had no one to comfort them. No one to advocate for them. No one to protect them. He mentions no comfort twice in verse 1 for emphasis. The oppressed don't have power. The preacher says the power is on this side of the oppressors. The oppressors are the ones who are making the laws and who justify their oppressions, or at least they're able to pay off or bribe the authorities. In recent history, in our day and time, we have seen so many oppressions and injustices. We have seen the oppression of the preborn baby. The preborn baby has no power and no one to defend them. The abortion of babies is a tragic oppression that shows we are no better off than in Solomon's day. We've seen human beings shot and killed on camera for doing absolutely nothing wrong. And we have seen their killers walk free because they are the ones with the power. And friends, let's not fool ourselves into thinking that this is only a problem for the world out there. For other people. since all of us have oppressed others. All of us have been in situations where we've used our power, our advantage to our own gain instead of for the benefit of others. We've all assumed that it doesn't matter how we treat others as long as we're doing what's best for us. Notice that the preacher is merely observing life under the sun. Notice here, he doesn't say what we're to do about this. He isn't saying we should rise up, do something about the oppressions, hold a rally, stage a protest. No, he doesn't say any of that. He's just resigned to the fact that this is life in this fallen world. Sinners oppress others. This is what we do. This is who we are at the core of our being. In fact, in chapter 5, verse 8, he actually says, don't be amazed. When you see injustice and oppression, don't be amazed. It's part of life in this fallen world. Now, God's Word gives all kinds of promises. Praise God to those who are being oppressed. God is the Father of mercies. He is near to the brokenhearted. He will right all wrongs in the end when King Jesus returns. However, God never promises that oppressions will end until then. As long as we live life under this sun, there will be oppressors and there will be no one to comfort the oppressed. And as God's people, we should take this as a warning to us. We should take this as a warning to never use our God-given authority or privilege to oppress others. Friends, we should always move toward comforting those who are being oppressed. The preacher says they had no one to comfort them, no one to advocate for them, no one to defend them. As God's people, we should always move toward defending those who are treated unjustly, those who are being oppressed. In fact, our Savior was a perfect model of this for us. Our Savior was always moving toward those who were being oppressed and downtrodden by the society. Church, it matters deeply how we treat others. It matters deeply, especially those with less power than us. That's the first lie that we're tempted to believe. Here's the second lie Lie number two I have to have everything everyone else has. I have to have everything everyone else has. And so verses four through six contain these proverb like sayings. Regarding pitfalls and lies surrounding our work, our work ethic. These proverbs are warning to us about the dangers we face in our work under the sun. And verses 4 and 6 address the sin of envy and greed, and then we'll see verse 5 addresses sloth and laziness. So in verse 4, the preacher says that he saw, notice, all toil and all skill and work come from a man's envy of his neighbor, which he again declares to be vanity, a chasing after the wind. Now, this is obviously a rhetorical device called hyperbole. The preacher can't mean everyone, without exception, is motivated by greed. However, to make this point as strongly as possible, he lumps every hard worker into this category. All toil and all skill come from envy of one's neighbor. He's saying envy is so rampant in our hearts that it is as if it is the only motivation of toiling and striving at work. To the preacher, it seems like everyone only cares about getting what everyone else has. Now be honest with yourself this morning. How strong is this lie in your heart? How strong of a pull does this lie hold on the decisions you make day in and day out? How much of your time do you spend thinking about what you wish you could have? How prevalent is comparison with others in your motivations. Friends, it is never a Christian motivation to just keep up with others. It is never a Christian motivation to just have what others have. As Christians, we are to work and we are to toil for the glory of God. We are to work and make money so that we can be generous to others. Merely having more comforts or perceived security is never to be the motivation of our hard work. The preacher is is observing something in this fallen world that no one is brave enough to actually call out. Envy and coveting is a wicked evil that is as futile as chasing after the wind. In fact, look at the preacher's alternative in verse 6. verse 6 he says, Better is a handful of quietness than two handfuls of toil and a striving after win. So two handfuls is a metaphor for having more than you need, right? When you have more than you need, the preacher says the result is anxiety and strife. So are you grabbing two handfuls of stuff of this life? Are you like the kid when the piñata is busted at the birthday party, has to fill all of his pockets with candy? You see, when your pockets and your hands are full of candy, it's kind of hard to enjoy the rest of the party, right? While everyone else is jumping on the bouncy house, you're worried that you're going to drop some of your candy. While everyone else is enjoying the piece of cake, you're too full of candy. And you dare not set your candy down and go enjoy the kickball game because someone else might take your candy. The preacher says, having more than you need is a recipe for meaninglessness and trouble. Having two handfuls is a recipe for a life of anxiety. He says it is better to have one handful with peace than to have more than you need with anxiety and strife. This is an argument. This is an argument against the lie that we have to keep up with everyone else in this fallen world. The preacher says, look at the the neighbor's car in the driveway next to yours. Do you you want that? Do Do you covet that? Do you envy that? Is that why you're working? Because what you can't see, what you can't see is the trouble and the strife. You can't see the restless nights wondering how he's going to pay his bills, wondering how he's going to provide for his family. Here's how the rest of the Bible instructs us to battle this lie. The Bible says, Be content with what God gives. And if God gives more than you need, which praise God he does, we're to be generous and open handed. For the path of true happiness is enjoying what God gives, and part of enjoying what God gives is in giving it away. Toiling to get more stuff will only leave you empty and wasting life. Here's how Solomon put it in Proverbs 15:16. Listen to this and ask yourself, do you actually believe this? Proverbs 15:16. Better is a little with the fear of the Lord than great treasure and trouble with it. Do you believe that? Do you believe it's better to have a little bit and have peace and joy with Jesus than to have all the stuff this world goes after and trouble and anxiety and strife with it? Friends, don't believe the lie that you have to have everything everyone else has. Be content and enjoy peace. Peace. Well, here's the third lie that we see in this passage. Lie number three. I can be lazy without any consequences. I can be lazy without any consequences. So, verse 5 ensures that we don't hear verse 4 as an argument for laziness, right? Oh, he said all toil comes from envy of a neighbor, so we'll just stop toiling. No, the preacher is not advocating for a life of leisure. Look at verse 5. The fool... The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. And so the metaphor of folding one's hands is a metaphor for sloth and laziness. Proverbs 6.10 describes the sluggard as saying, a little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest. In other words, the sluggard can't wait to just lie down and take it easy. Well, friends, we live in a culture that pushes the value of idleness over productivity. Slothfulness is rampant in our world today. The slogan of modern America is, do as little real work as possible and then relax. I don't think it's an overstatement to say that most Americans live for the weekends, the vacations, and the retirement. Leisure is the treasure that we worship We love our laziness. And the preacher says the consequences of our idleness is that we will eat our own flesh. Now, this is clearly a metaphor for self destruction, right? The lazy person may not physically eat himself, but he spiritually destroys himself little by little. To pursue a life of leisure is to chase the wind, it is meaningless. Don't believe this. Lie. Work hard for the glory of God in order to be generous to others. That's lie number three. Here's the fourth lie. Lie number four. I don't need other people. The fourth lie is I don't need other people. And given the amount of space that the preacher spends on this point in chapter 4, I gather this is a very important truth for us to hear. And So let's read this section slowly again. Let's read verses 7-12 through 12 and listen to it based on this lie that we often believe, that we're independent, that we can do it on our own. Verse 7, Again, I saw vanity under the sun. One person who has no other, either son or brother, Yet there is no end to all his toil, and his eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he never asks, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity and an unhappy business. Two are better than one, because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow, But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. So verses 7 and 8 describe a very sad scene that's played out time and time again in our world the preacher sees a hard-working man who labors and toils in order to get more and more riches, who one day stops just long enough to ask a reflective question. He stops to ask the question, why am I toiling? For whom am I toiling? I've got no one to enjoy these riches with. Now the reason this is so sad is because what this man had is what so many people are chasing. We chase money and success and fame instead of deeper and sweeter relationships. The preacher concludes, notice, this is an unhappy business. Why is it an unhappy business? It's an unhappy business because this man has everything he ever wanted. But he doesn't have anyone to share it with. He doesn't have anyone to celebrate with. This man could buy dinner for everyone in the whole restaurant, but no one wants to sit with him. This man has the finest of luxury cars, but no one wants to ride with him. I know it's cliche, but it's true. No one on their deathbed is going to wish they had upgraded to the latest smartphone sooner, or had gotten that new car sooner. But everyone, without exception, in their last moments, wishes they had cultivated stronger relationships. So the preacher teaches in verse 9, two are better than one. This truth is so simple and yet so profound. I'm convinced if we were to embrace this truth, two are better than one, so much of our lives and what we do and how we think would change. I'm just praying, God, let this simple truth land on us in a profound way that impacts the way we do the rest of our lives. Two are better than one. Why is that true? Well, the preacher says, notice first, because if one falls down, he has someone to help him up. Two, because if someone's cold, he has someone to keep him warm. Third, if he's robbed, he has a friend to protect him. Now, this passage certainly applies to marriage, which is the context I think we usually hear this passage applied to, right? Have you ever heard this at a a wedding? Yeah, I have. Marriage is designed by God to display that two are better than one. In fact, on this day, my 23rd wedding anniversary, let me clearly say, two are better than one. The companionship... Thank you. Thank you. Yes, indeed. The companionship of a loving spouse is a precious gift that produces good rewards for husband and wife. But the preacher, I want you to notice this is making application much broader than just a marriage. This is about the value of friendship and togetherness. This is is about the danger of isolation and loneliness in this life under the sun. Indeed, this passage is about relationships in the church of Jesus Christ. This is about how we relate to each other. We were not made to follow Jesus alone. We were made to be in community with each other. Indeed, if 2 are better than 1, the preacher says, then 3 are better than 2. Right? A threefold cord is not quickly broken. The more cords that are woven together in a rope, the stronger the rope will be. Right? And if 3 are better than 2, then we can definitively say that 211 are better than that. Which, by the way, is the current number of members in this church. We are part of a 211 member cord that is braided together by God at this time, at this location, for our sanctification, for our good. So that we'll have someone to help us up when we fall. So that we'll have someone to keep us warm when we're cold. So that we'll have someone to protect us when we're prevailed against. Friends, we are foolish to isolate ourselves. And to believe the lie that we can do it on our own. In fact, the strong warning of verse 10 should resound in our ears. Notice the preacher pronounces a woe to the one who has no one to lift him up. Remember remember the woes from the book of Revelation we studied last year? Woes are serious. And here he pronounces a woe on the one who is by himself. Friends, you and I will fall. We will fall. You're not sturdy and strong enough to make it through life on your own, you will fall. And so when you fall, who's going to help you up? Who do you have to pick you up when you fall? Friends, I think this is perhaps the most eternally devastating consequence of the pandemic. It wasn't that you were forced to wear a mask. It wasn't that your freedoms were taken away. It was that you were encouraged to isolate yourself from others. I'm convinced And we're going to keep seeing the devastating effects of the isolation in the days to come. Two are better than one. We were not made to be independent. We were not made to be on our own. In fact, I think this is the lesson of verses 13-16. through Now, verses 13-16 is a very difficult little uh, allegory that it's difficult to understand. Uh, Scholars go all over the place with this with this little illustration that he gives. But to me, connected to what he's just said about friendship and accountability, I think the point of this little parable is that the old foolish king didn't take advice. The old foolish king isolated himself from what he needed. And because of that, he's going to be forgotten and the, the young poor person is now the king. He thought he was sufficient and he pushed everyone else away and the results are chasing after the win, isolation and loneliness and intentionally separating yourself from others is to live a life chasing after the wind and so apply this to your life today how are you today going to demonstrate by what you do that two are better than one spend your days investing in relationships yes can we just admit people are hard to love People are hard to love. It's easier to just stay at home and watch some shows and not answer the phone and not go to the community group. Relationships are messy. They're messy. One of my absolute favorite book titles of all time is the book called Relationships, A Mess Worth Making. That's a good book title. Relationships, A Mess Worth Making. Because you need others and I need others And God Almighty has created us in this way. He's made us to need others. And so don't believe this lie. Don't believe it. Well, the final lie, number five. Lie number five is, I can worship God any way I want. I can worship God any way I want. So the first few verses of chapter five, the preacher addresses flippancy and hypocrisy and pride in our worship of God. These verses, verses 1 through 7 of chapter 5, have more to say about our God than any other passage in the book of Ecclesiastes. These verses teach us that God expects us to draw near to worship Him. In Solomon's day, that was going to the temple. In our day, that means gathering with God's people to worship. This passage teaches that God cares about how we worship Him. We can't worship Him any way that we please. He judges our worship. And this passage teaches that unlike the gods of the nations, our God is a God who speaks to His people. This makes our God unique. He is a speaking, communicating God. And so the preacher says we should guard our steps when we approach God in worship, We should guard our steps when we go to worship this holy and righteous God. And he applies that, I think, in two different ways. He says we are first to hear God, and second, we are to fear God. Hear God and fear God. Here's, here's the ultimate application to this passage. Chapter 5, verse 1 says, "...we are to draw near to listen rather than offering the sacrifice of fools." In other words, God would rather you come near to listen to Him than you bring a bunch of gifts to give to Him. To listen to Him is what God expects of the posture that we come. You see, fools come as if they have something to offer God. Fools come in pride thinking they're going to instruct God on how He should rule the universe. Notice the bucket of cold water that the preacher throws into our prideful faces in verse 2. Chapter 5, verse 2. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God, for God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. You. When you come to God, come with the posture of listening, not speaking. Close your mouth and open your heart when you come to God. This is why, friends, in our church, we make Scripture reading and expository preaching central in our worship gatherings. This is what we've come to do. We haven't come to lecture God. We've gathered to listen to and submit to our great God. He speaks through His Word, and so we read His Word and we proclaim His Word. God is in heaven. We are on earth, and knowing that, should ensure that we come to God to worship Him, to listen, not to satisfy our own preferences, not to satisfy our own desires. Oh friends, how many people have gathered to worship God with God's people and they identify some reason outside of themselves as the reason that they can't truly worship God. If the worship leader would just lead the right songs, then I could worship God. If that preacher was more engaging and less focused on doctrine, then we would feel more inspired to worship God. If the temperature was just a few degrees cooler or warmer, if the lights weren't so bright, if the seats weren't so uncomfortable, then we could really worship God. Friends, the problem in worship is our own hearts. The problem in worship is not anything outside of us. If God is central in the gathering, if His Word is proclaimed, then we should be able to worship God anywhere with any other believers. The fool refuses to listen to God. The wise worshiper to God is quick to slow down and listen and obey. Remember James said, be quick to listen and slow to speak. Be quick to hear and slow to speak. Remember Jesus said to the churches in the book of Revelation, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. When we draw near to worship God, He wants us to listen to Him. He wants us to listen with the view of obeying Him and doing what He says. Which leads to that second application. Fear God. Not only hear God, but fear Him. We're to listen with a reverence for God. We are to fear Him. As the preacher says at the end of verse 7, God is the one you must fear. Now in chapter 5 verses 4-6, through the preacher brings up this practice of making vows to God. This was evidently a common practice in Solomon's day where people would promise things like how much money they were going to give to God if God did something for them. And the preacher knows that human nature is to backtrack on our promises. It's very easy to vow to do something, but it's much harder to actually do what you promised you would do. And so he says, fear God. And how would fear God impact this? Well, it means you fear God enough to do what you promise. To go back on a vow means you don't really fear that God is the judge. That He is evaluating and judging your life. And so the preacher says, pay what you vow. Do what you said. And because God is the judge, don't make vows that you can't or aren't intending to actually keep. It is better to not vow, he says, than to vow and not follow through. You see what he's saying? God is holy. And He demands pure worship. Not fake and hypocritical and prideful worship. Hear God and fear God. He's in heaven and you are on earth. We must worship Him as He is instructed. Not just any way we please. Don't believe the lie that you can worship God any way you please. So which of these five lies are you prone to believe today? Which of these five lies is God speaking to you about you believing in your own heart? And my answer when I ask myself that question is all of them. All five of them. I know how prone I am to gravitate toward. And so again, friends, let me make clear. Ecclesiastes shows us the problem for which Jesus is the answer. The way Ecclesiastes fits in the canon of Scripture is it reveals to us our need for a Savior. Reveals to us our need to have a redeemer, a rescuer, to come and rescue us from our brokenness. Jesus came to redeem us from the meaninglessness of oppression, and envy, and greed, and slothfulness, and isolation, and hypocrisy in worship. The answer to the sin and evil in my heart and your heart is not to try harder and do better. Friends, that's a fruitless pursuit. The answer is to trust the sinless Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. This is why we partake of the Lord's Supper this morning. We are great sinners. In partaking of the Lord's Supper, we are acknowledging something about us, about how deeply broken we are. Our hearts and our motives are not pure before God. And our actions and our behavior have not flowed out of our identity as one of God's people. But Jesus is a great Savior of sinners. He laid down His own life and took the punishment that our sin deserves. And He died in our place so that we could be restored and counted as righteous in His righteousness. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 26, Paul told us that the reason we partake of the Lord's Supper is to proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. We proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. We remember His perfect sacrifice in our place. And so because this is what that means, because of how awesome this is, Paul warns to not partake of these elements in an unworthy manner. And so listen, if you're not trusting in Jesus Christ today, please do not participate in this ordinance. This is only for those who are believing in Jesus and willing to follow Him and listen to what He says. If you're not following Jesus, if He isn't the Lord of your life, for your own soul's sake, do not partake of these elements. Instead, utilize this time to pray and ask God to change your heart. Ask God to help you treasure Jesus as your only Savior. But if you are trusting in Jesus this morning, you desire to proclaim your faith in Him, then Jesus said, do this in remembrance of Me. This is an invitation from the Lord Jesus to remember His death to proclaim your faith in what He has accomplished. And so look upon the suffering of Christ with joy that you have been reconciled by God. You've been rescued from the deep pit of your sin. This is a table for sinners. We gather around this table to commune with the Lord unworthy. None of us are worthy to be here and to partake of these elements. But we've been invited to enjoy the Lord's presence by remembering His death and proclaiming His goodness, His kindness, and looking forward to His coming. And so what we're going to do is we're going to spend just a few minutes of reflection. Uh, Mike is going to come. The team is going to come uh, to lead us in a song of reflection. Gethsemane hymn. This is a hymn that helps us focus on the sufferings of our Savior. And so take these few moments to examine yourself, to look upward and outward to the Savior, and then I'll come back and we'll partake together.